Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. These unprecedented times are a real challenge to all of us. We're so happy to be able to bring you faithful Catholic programs and enriching conversations. We need your help to stay on the air, though. Please consider going to our website and making a tax-deductible gift to Veritas Catholic Network. It's www.veritascatholic.com. Thank you so much. On today's episode of Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano will tell us about the early days of the Church and the similarities between the apostolic times and today's times. Our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. Although you can't tour the museum during this time of health caution, you can always visit on the web. Take your family online and take a journey together through history, art, and faith. Visit kofcmuseum.org. Hey everybody, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee and honored as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Your Excellency. As always. Yes, we're, we're working through this now. I can, I, we're still remote, but I can at least see you, you can see me, and uh, it's feeling more like a normal conversation a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and thank John in particular, who is the brains behind the operation in the background technologically. So John, yeah. thank you for your help. Yeah, he's doing great. So I um, want to dive into it. Uh, Your Excellency, we've been talking about the days of the early church, so we're going to continue doing that um, today. And for me, you know, the early chapters of Acts of the Apostles paint really an exciting picture. You know, when I read it, I picture it like a movie in my head with dramatic music in the background and everything. The apostles are converting souls to Christ by the thousands. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. fantastic Mm -hmm. stories of preaching and curing and raising the dead. They're so loved that the Sanhedrin are afraid of them for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. put Mm -hmm. Put us back there. Okay, so <laughs> for, for those of us who paid attention to the first reading at Mass this past Sunday, it came from the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. And if you remember, it painted this beautiful, idyllic uh, description of the community where they broke bread together, they studied, they prayed together, everyone got along, they shared their goods, <clears throat> which is exactly how Christian communities need to live and should live. In fact, in the apostolic age, while that may have been true at some times, we also know from the letters of St. Paul that that was not always true. So you recall the admonition that Paul said, you people who are following, some are following Apollos, Apollos, and some are following me, and some are, it's all about following Jesus. So like everything else in life, You know, there's the religious fervor, which is good. There's the great desire to live what we believe, which is great. And then there's the human frailty that comes into play. And we get into our own ways, right? Literally, we are our own worst enemies sometimes. When we either don't believe that we can actually live what we're being told, or we compromise with ourselves, with others, or the great sin of mediocrity that falls into place. But the Acts tell us clearly how we are to live with one another and who we are to each other. 
So the early church, what I call the primitive church, the early church, which are the first two generations after the Lord's resurrection, is called apostolic for a very good reason. Because without the apostles, they would not have been the glue that held them together. We, I think, in the modern world, in the contemporary world, have lost sight often of the huge leap the church made in this time between having eyewitnesses to the resurrection in their midst who were the apostles to a generation where all of them had gone to the Lord and were no longer present in their midst. Right? So the apostles were the link with the risen Lord. And if you recall, in the calling of St. Matthias, in the choosing of St. Matthias, do you remember what the, the condition was for the two men that were discerned? They had to be with us from the beginning of our ministry so that they could be witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord. So at the foundation of the early church was the, its apostolic nature. If you were not connected to the apostles, then there was something fundamentally and essentially missing. And I think the apostles were the guiding force to keep the community together, not just in faith, but in conduct, in charity. Um, you alluded last time we were together about that poor gentleman who said he had sold his land and then actually held somebody back, and he died and his wife died. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So that was a real accounting. Uh, that was a reckoning, that's for sure. Um, but then the others who did, who did that, who were very generous. So, so that's a picture. It was a picture of a church where in the midst of great persecution, they truly did love one another and cared for one another and guided one another. Can I tell you a quick story? Yes, of course. Um, when I grew up in Brooklyn and... Um, we talked about this early church and you know, growing up learning about the early church and looking and, and, you know, imagining in my mind what that persecution looked like. And the sisters were very vivid in their description, right? Um, when, you, when I saw the passion of the Christ and the suffering inflicted on the Lord, it was shocking and when I saw the movie Paul, Apostle of Christ, and saw the persecution inflicted on the early church, really graphically, it was shocking. As a boy, it was almost romanticized, but now much older, it is, it is pure, untamed brutality. That for the average person, I'm sure they would run for the hills. But they didn't. They didn't which should be encouraging to us and challenging to us because I think many of us would prefer to run to the hills. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, but that's not the apostolic church. Yeah. And that, that church, the community of Christians in um, Jerusalem and then in Rome, that w the Christianity was so countercultural, right, to, to what everybody knew. The Romans knew and understand and respected strength and power. But... God, the Christians recognize that God works in small and local ways, helping the widows and the orphans and the sick. Mm -hmm. So countercultural. Without a doubt. Even the role of women for the early church was very countercultural because women figured prominently among 
Paul's assistants and companions in faith, and also the earliest witnesses of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene was the first to see the gardener, right? Who turned out to be the risen Lord. And she was the one who brought the message. We talked about that last time. But women figure prominently throughout the early Christian community, and it's one of the reasons why it had such explosive growth. Because the Roman pagan world terribly mistreated women and reduced them literally to possessions and property. But the Christian community did not do that. So to your point, it was, it was countercultural in the true and most beautiful sense of the word. And, uh, and the Christians, they had this great um, uh, existence and presence. Like, you know, I, the, like I mentioned, the Sanhedrin were even afraid to, to be forceful with Peter and the apostles because the people loved them so much. And then suddenly Stephen is martyred. And that very day, the persecutions start. Right. Yes. Well, it was almost as if, if there was a political calculation going on for the authorities on both sides, the religious authorities as well as civil authorities, that what were they to make of this little cult that arose that claims that this itinerant preacher rose with the dead when they probably say these people are insane. Right. Right. But so obviously it can't be true. So what's the political motivation? What's the religious motivation? In other words, are they going to get back at us doing this? And because, if you recall, last time we met, it was all of this religious ferment in Jerusalem at the time that um, they probably were uncertain as to what to do and how to handle it so that we're not even further in the uh, in in the place where they didn't want to be until Stephen was martyred. And then it's almost like breaking the ice. So the first Christian martyr, once he shed his life for Christ, then it was like open season. It almost at that point gave license to further persecution. And of course, Nero factors very seriously in this calculation because Nero was a disaster as a leader, a complete unadulterated disaster on every level. And he used the Christians as the scapegoat for the burning of Rome. Of, uh, of Rome when, the, when the Christians had nothing to do with it historically. There's no evidence. But he had to blame somebody. So he figured, let's get rid of this cult and I will get political benefit from it. But one of the things we have to realize is that ancient Rome and contemporary society have a lot of values in common. <laughs> Right? They have a yes. lot, of, and which then gives us pause to say, well, we seem to be in a period where the church is evangelical outreach is not necessarily giving birth the way we want, the fruit we want. We could learn from the apostolic church what their recipe of success was, but we first have to say, what's the commonality? How are we different and how are we the same? Yes. Yeah. And we're going to definitely dive into that um, later in yeah, the show. Exactly. Well, so uh, just continuing through Acts, though. Uh, so um, Stephen's martyrdom—that's the—that's the catalyst that allows the um, the authorities to start persecuting the Christians, as you said. It, it, 
-hmm. It seems like that's also the catalyst that finally gets the apostles to go out and to to mm -hmm. you know fan out and, and spread the word. Mm -hmm. And you also absolutely, and we also have to remember the Council of Jerusalem, the first of the great councils, finalized the rationale to go out. Because there was, you remember that great controversy, is whether a believer in the Lord Jesus also needed to follow the law and the mandates and prescriptions of the law. Right. And Peter himself evolved in his thinking. He was challenged by St. Paul, who, ironically, St. Paul was the faithful rabbinical leader in his earlier life who followed the Torah almost um, to the letter of the law. And yet he was the one advocating that the message was for Jews and Gentiles alike. So in that great compromise, which again is a lesson for all of us about, number one, how Christians in a time of disagreement need to discern the will of God. It's not compromising. They don't compromise. We don't compromise with each other. That's not the point. Because the truth is not dependent on my opinion or your opinion or our opinion. The truth is dependent on discerning what God is willing and following whatever he asks. There's not democracy in that sense. There's only one opinion that matters, the Lord Jesus. That's it. Yes. So they discern that in the Council of Jerusalem. So that sense of when there are divisions among Christians, it really is a question of putting our face to prayer focusing our eyes on Jesus. And that's how we reconcile and heal and how we find the way forward. But the other is to be surprised by God. Say, Pope Francis talks about it a lot. I'm sure Peter never imagined when he began to follow Jesus that it would be an outreach to everyone on earth. So, but once that was settled, then the apostles went out. Okay. Mm -hmm. They were fearlessly preaching within Jerusalem. Within, then they went to the four corners of the world, right? Thomas wound up in India. Yeah. Uh, because that was their mandate. Now, suddenly it wasn't the small geography. It was the known world, which is ultimately what has happened, is that the church has touched every language, every nation, every continent, every race. It is, and please God, will continue to grow. Yeah. The, the Council of Jerusalem... That kind of shows us that, that uh, even from the very first days, there was a structure to the church, right? And um, mm -hmm. uh, a hierarchy and authority. I mean, Peter makes the definitive teaching at the end. Absolutely. He's the rock. Yeah. But he cannot make... It's fascinating, the parallel, to your point. But he cannot say anything that is truly binding unless it is in communion with the other apostles. And we have still that too, an infallibility that the successor of Peter has, but that infallibility is not exercised apart from the communion of the episcopacy throughout the world. Right? We, we, Peter speaks with one voice and he speaks for all with one voice. So yes, so from the earliest church, you see the same practice we have today. I, what, what fascinates me Okay, because I, I kind of think of things in somewhat odd ways sometimes, because I, I, it gets me thinking. But I wonder to myself, 
when I do an examination of conscience, when I pray over the Acts of the Apostles, I wonder to myself, if I were in that room at the Council of Jerusalem, what would I have advocated for? Would I have advocated for stay put, stay close, and if I could be so bold, so frank, <laughs> stay safe? Right. Or would I have advocated, you know what, the Lord is really telling us to go out to all nations, so let's, we're already risking, let's risk to the end. Okay. And I'm not prepared to say in this podcast what I would have said, because I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> right. You have to be at the moment. But it is a good, I think, exercise of conscience for everyone, because at other moments in our lives, we're asked to make a choice. And sometimes the choice is doing it the safe way mm -hmm. or doing it with real risk. And you make the choice depending on what God is asking you to do, yeah. not what's most comfortable for you and I to do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the apostolic age is fascinating. Uh, it's, it, in many ways, it pictures the outline of what every age needs to do. You're gonna face controversy, you're gonna face opposition, you're gonna face persecution, there's gonna be divisions in the church as well, and how do you do it? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, you must remain in the line of the apostles, okay? Where the continuity of faith and morals exist, the teachings of the church. And we need to, in times of division, keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, not on each other, because he will allow us to find the way, because every age is different. It is fundamentally yeah. different. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'd like to ask you, Excellency, um, we have scriptures, we have, um, what should we know about the Didache? I know it's not scripture, but it does have authority, right? And what, can you tell us more about the Didache? Yes. Yes, it's the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and it's, it's an early pastoral exhortation. Um, it is in the line of a lot of the apostolic early fathers in their writings. So I'm thinking of people like Clement of Rome and Justin Martyr and that group, which we'll eventually talk about. It's, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating if you consider. We see the scriptures, you can see the scriptures, and in a certain sense, it is true to say of the scriptures that they are a static deposit of teaching, because they are. That is the revealed word of God, that the church over a few centuries finalized its canon with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and holds as definitive revelation. However, that, that canon exists in a larger context. And every generation prays over that. And every generation tries to understand its meaning in an ever deeper way. So when you look at the Didache, when you look at Justin Martyr, when you look at St. Clement and some of the earliest, Ignatius of Antioch, who also wrote epistles, just like Paul did, to the same cities Paul wrote to, but they're not canonical. It's almost like commentary on scripture. It's almost as if the earliest Christians were trying to understand 
and we say in Italian approfondire, to, to make more profound, to deepen their understanding, which if you really want to understand the scriptures, you also have to understand them. Just as much as everyone after them has done that. So that's why we, we speak of a living tradition in the church. It is, it is the echoing and re-echoing in history of the deep, revelatory teaching that God is giving us in sacred scripture. It's almost like singing a note, and as it echoes, is history going through time. So we're listening to that and adding to it. So, um, no, they're not definitive, but they are illustrative of what the scripture is trying to teach us. And most of the early fathers taught with their homilies. How? By commenting on the scripture, which we'll talk about when we talk about the, the apostolic and, and the early fathers of the church. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it feels like it's also uh, more confirmation that, you know, the Catholic church doesn't rely on scripture alone. We have, we follow tradition in, a, in addition to scripture and the teachings, right. the ongoing teachings of the magisterium. Correct. So it's the three pieces, right? You said it very well. It's scripture, tradition, and magisterium. So scripture is the revelation of the word of God, right, through human agency. There is tradition, which is, I'm going to say, the echoing, which is, um, it is the teaching, it is the liturgy and the worship, it is the lived experience of God's people that is breaking open what has been revealed in Jesus. Dei Verbum, the Constitution on Divine Revelation at the Vatican Council speaks of revelation as more than propositional, a set of, of, of statements. It is that and more. It is an event in the life, death, resurrection, glorification of Jesus Christ and his presence in the world as his mystical body. So that's the tradition. So the tradition is not just, it's even our prayer. The mass teaches us the faith. That's why it's so central to go to mass. You don't just learn about it. You have to pray it, live it. And it gives you an intuition of what the truth is that you may not even always express in words. And then the magisterium is the guider to make sure the truth is always respected, adhered to, and clearly taught. Yeah. Magisterium, which yeah. is which are the bishops and Peter as the head. Yes. And bef before we go to break, it's um, you look you re go back and you look at Acts and you look at um, as you said uh, some of the writings of the early church fathers, which we'll get into in a future episode. But mm -hmm. you know, Cardinal Newman said. To be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. I mean, when you look, read that stuff from the early days, you can see from the very beginning, the church was Catholic. Mm -hmm. The greatest enemy to the truth is a half-truth. Because a half-truth takes one aspect of what is true and distorts it by making it the full truth. And every heresy in the church's life is a half-truth. That's why it's persuasive. And the great 
I'm going to call it now, the great dialogue that occurs between God and humanity throughout all of history, but particularly in the definitive revelation of salvation in Jesus Christ. Remember, there's only one Savior, it's Jesus. Let's get that straight. There is only one Savior. Mm -hmm. His name is Jesus. Yes. So, and that's at the, at the foundation of Christian revelation. Right? There's a definitive act of redemptive salvation in Christ's death and resurrection. So, having said that, there's a great dialogue because in our understanding of the truth, there will come a time, and there was in history, where philosophy entered in to try to figure out more systematically the insights of biblical uh, truth because they were hard to explain further than just a, a simple acceptance of faith. So Aristotle, St. Thomas, Plato, and the early fathers tried to use some of those categories. So there's always that dialogue, and therefore we could always kind of, um, to put it politely, is like get off the ranch, like find yourself off the ranch, because <laughs> you get so enamored of your thought, your hypothesis, the way you think it should work, or, or trying to think you can actually explain all of it, which is not possible, that you take something, emphasize it to the point where it's no longer the fullness of the truth and you get into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> History has shown a lot of good people getting into trouble. That's right. That's right. So uh, on that note, we're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, Bishop Frank will talk about how the apostolic age was similar to today. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Hey all, we are back on Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We've been talking about the early days of the church following Jesus' resurrection. And um, right before we came back from the break, Your Excellency, you mentioned uh, something about the formula for um, evangelical growth. Yes, absolutely. That the primitive church, apostolic church, um, discovered, because of their fidelity to the Lord, that we need to rediscover in the 21st century. So in order to understand the formula, you have to understand the context. So imagine the church is like a plant planted in a soil box. That soil box is the larger culture and world. And through the ages, it has been different. But in the apostolic, in the, well, I even call the primitive church, it is eerie to me that a lot of what animated that society is precisely where our contemporary 21st century society seems to be moving in the same direction. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, in Roman times, there was very little value placed on human life. Not simply because it was a conquering empire, not simply because it had wholesale slavery, not simply because it treated women as property, but because it had actually legalized infanticide, which means not only could you abort your children, 
but you could actually give birth to your child. And I forget if it was up to 30 days. If this child annoyed you, you didn't like the way it looked, it just was too much. You could go to the taiba, smash the baby's head in, throw the body into the taiba, no legal repercussion. You talk about sensual and promiscuous society. Just what the emperors were guilty of, historically documented, would make this podcast R-rated if I ever described what half of that stuff was. All right. It was shocking. Materialistic. Mother of the saints. I mean, any culture that thinks its emperor is God and it's a strict order of social casting, right? So there are certain castes and certain noble families. It was all about the desires of the moment, of the flesh, and of material possessions that accorded a place of privilege and authority and power. Now, while no age is identical, the fact that we are in the 21st century have life under attack. Whether it is unborn, clearly, and even when it's born, is under attack. When we're a culture that is self-absorbed, very much sensual and promiscuous. One where there is social inequality that is clear and where those who are in the outcasts remain outcasts and that outcast group is growing. You, and, and a time where we're not even sure what the truth is anymore, you could see that there are, in a contemporary way, echoes of the same themes that animated Roman life. And that's the seed box, the soil box, where the church was planted. And it responded, Steve, an historic fact. The church had its largest most widespread, one could even say explosive growth. It's most explosive growth in that age, in the first four or five generations after the apostles. When to be a Christian, the penalty was death. And to show allegiance to the emperor, the only thing you had to do was to take a single grain of incense and throw it onto a pyre with either the image of the emperor or one of the pagan goddesses that they, whatever happened, region happened to believe in or honor or worship, whatever the heck. Um, that was it. That was it. You did that, you were fine. That was the period in which the Christian church had explosive growth. So let me ask you a question. How? How is that possible? How's that possible? I talked before about running for the hills. Most people make a mental reservation, throw the incense, you know, I'm joking now. Seek forgiveness, go to confession, next day start all over again, and you know, we're back to square one. That didn't exist in the ancient church. Auricular confession hadn't even arisen in the ancient church at that point. So how did it happen? I've stumbled on a movie review in the Wall Street Journal in April of 2018 of the movie Paul Apostle of Christ that literally stretched my mind. 
written by a person who was not a believer, who asked that very same question. And the answer that she gave, I believe, is the recipe for the 21st century. She said there were many factors. The positive treatment of women and outcasts is a central piece to this. Right? The church went where other people did not want to go. The church served those society turned their back on. Sounds familiar. It's Matthew 25. But also it was heroic holiness, personal heroic holiness, and communities of faith that were authentic, so authentic that those who died could allow their families somewhere to go that they would be cared for and they could die in peace. And I may have mentioned earlier one of our podcasts, the beautiful image of St. Peter's and all those statues on the Bernini column, all those people died as martyrs. Many of them died in that square. So what's the recipe for renewal? So Christianity in the early church, it was I'm in all the way or I'm not. You're either, you're either going to strive to be 100% in or you're going to do something else. And we're going to get band together as communities, to your point, and we're all going to love each other. We're not perfect. We're going to have division. We're going to have fighting. But we're going to love each other so that people are cared for, so that people could actually give their life to Christ in peace. What do we do in the 21st century? The same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. This is the time when every Christian has to ask, am I in or not? I'm not in like a Chinese menu, 62%, I'll take two on this column, four on that column, a little bit of that, I'll make myself dinner. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Okay? Faith is not a Chinese menu, or any menu for that matter, Right. in any restaurant. You're all in. Now, you may say, I don't understand this. I'm not sure I believe. We'll get to you. The whole point is we'll get, you spend a lifetime understanding it all, learning about it, coming to understand why the church teaches what it teaches. Because faith is not something that is just static. It grows over time. But there's got to be heroic commitment to Christ, personally, and then a community that's loving, that supports me in my heroism. So let me ask you a very blunt question. Let me be frank. How many communities do you know that are that authentically loving, one with the other? How many communities do we have across the globe that are Christian, that if I were martyred for the faith, I could die in peace knowing that my family was cared for. I don't think we're always quite there, but because we need to get there, when we do, there will be an explosion of Christian faith that the secular world will be reduced to silence on its knees. There will be the father of evil who in many ways, in his pride and arrogance, thinks that he has duped many of us to believe that what we have is the best we can do. He will be the first one to never imagine 
that we will rise in grace to the challenge Christ has given us. We'll even reduce him to silence. That is how confident I am we can do this. But we need to learn our lessons, don't we? So that is my sense of where we're at. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing because, like you, I'm just going to reiterate what you said, Excellency, because it's such a powerful point. You know, Christianity um, in the Roman times was such a radical, explicit mm -hmm. difference from the society at the time, and. Mm -hmm. And like you said back then, you had to be silent. You had to be fervent and heroic in your belief. Um, today in the U.S., we have, quote, Christianity, but it's so watered down. It's the menu Christianity. There are, though, um, there are places in the world where it's still like that today, though, isn't it? Maybe in China or some other places where but, it's yeah. still... But even in our midst, there are, there are communities that are very vibrant here, like in the Diocese of Bridgeport, there are. So we're not all in the same place. And you see it in some of our parishes. I mean, it's not perfect, but progress is being made. And in ecclesial communities, there's certainly progress being made, where small groups of people are coming together, sharing faith for a lifetime. Yeah. Right? So there is, and in other parts of the world where there's active persecution, then there is even intentionality. So part of what I think we need to understand, and this may be a little controversial, it is what it is. Um, I don't think we need to have a martyr's complex to say, to be a Christian means ordinarily and always I am persecuted for my faith, because that's not always true. But I think it's naive to think that I can be a Christian, authentically Christian, and not at one time or another stir real, real opposition to yeah. get people worked up. You cannot be fully accepted in society without ruffling some feathers, and maybe a lot of feathers, Right. if you're gonna be authentically Christian. Yes. So, you know, this whole idea of keeping the status quo and keep everybody happy, and I won't say something because I'm going to upset that person. I'm not suggesting go ahead and purposely upset someone. <laughs> no, but that's not Christian either. <laughs> <laughs> right? That, but you don't seek it. But when the occasion demands you tell the truth, you can't mince your words, even if people do get upset. And that will provoke persecution. They may not stab you, please God. <laughs> but they will confront you. Yeah. And then what do you do? Then do you back down? The early church didn't. Yeah. You know, Ephesians 4, right? To live the truth in love. St. Paul knew what that meant. Right? To speak the truth, who is Jesus Christ, in love. Because you do it not to confront the other person, but it is to invite the other person to encounter Christ through me. So I will tell you the truth because I love you and that's why I'm telling you the truth. Your response back to me may be confrontational, but that's not my intent in doing it for the first time. That's right. a big difference, isn't it, between those two approaches? It is. I think when you look at, um, when you look at the Acts of the Apostles and uh, Philip and Stephen and Paul and Peter, all these guys going out and preaching, 
when they preached, they started with the kerygma. Today, when we preach, we start at more of a micro level. Well, this is why you shouldn't uh, support abortion or, you know, instead of starting with, right. you know, the story and the love of Jesus Christ. Right. In other words, you cannot, allow me to illustrate, you cannot effectively preach the gospel of life if you don't start with the gospel. Yes. So if, 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 if the father sent the son into creation to freely take a human life, then every human life is of infinite value to God. That in and of itself is enough to preach the gospel of life, apart from the natural law and all the other arguments. But if you don't hold that, then the rest of it is harder um, to make a case for. So I think you're absolutely correct. In the end, it, it, it really is, in many ways, at least in my mind, um, heroic holiness, its foundation is the kerygma, its clarity, it's the basics. It's what am I going to be a hero over? What am I witnessing to? And it's all about the Lord Jesus. It's all about the faith we have in him as a church community and what we believe him to be, what he has done for me and what he asked me to do for others. Right? You know what the most, in my humble opinion, not that you ask, but I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> We're asking, we want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> In the Acts of the Apostles, do you remember when Peter was in the temple and the man sought him out? He was a beggar. And Peter said to him, I have no gold or silver to give you, but what I have, I will give. In the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. See, that's the kerygma. Yes. So I wonder to myself, in our own age, Many times we have silver and gold to give. That's time, talent, treasure, and we should. But do, but do we give the essential gift with sharing our faith with others, despite what may come of it, despite what opposition may come of it? It's an essential piece to renewal that we want for the church and for the world. Yeah. Let me ask you, so in your um, vision of this, you said the true, authentic revival of Christian life will bring secular society to its knees. I love that image. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so we see, as you just mentioned, Peter and Paul and, and many of the apostles performing miracles. Do you see, that if, if that revival happens, do you see more miracles taking place today then or... Do miracles even happen anymore today? Yes, of course they happen. Of course they do. Absolutely. Right? And again, remember, we spoke about this last time. Miracles are, are, are the inbreaking, the manifestation of God's presence in life into the world. So there, there are miracles of healing. There are, there's miracles of rising. Right? Um, there are miracles of... Um, for lack of a better way of putting it, is that there are miracles where a person discovers a new life. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Every, periodically, I've been blessed in my life to reconnect with people 
that I have had the privilege to serve and minister with and be a father to in my former parish when I was pastor in Brooklyn. And that's a long time ago. I was young. I had hair. It was great. Those are long time, long gone. <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, and they tell me, uh, Father Frank, do you remember, and they'll explain innocent, and honestly, 99% of the time, I have no recollection of what this It's been so long. I mean, I, I right. sometimes I do, but most of the times I don't. Anyway, and they'll say, and you have no idea that X happened, or I reconciled with my husband, or I was in this depression and I just found a new path, or I, the Lord touched me in X, Y, and Z way, which I had no knowledge of. And thank God I didn't have knowledge of because there's nothing to do with me. Absolutely zero to do with me. Now, what do you call those? So I call those miracles. I call those miracles because they are the inbreaking of God's presence in a situation, in a life, for a person where he was perhaps one moment unknown, unseen, and then profoundly known and seen. And a life has changed. Yeah. So the miracles happen. All the time, under our face, under our nose. And then there are the great miracles, like we talked about Buenos Aires and others, that are meant for not just my own personal, but for a lesson for a larger group. Yeah. Yeah. We can the, think of Lourdes. It's a perfect example, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, you, I, I'd like to ask you about... Um, heresies in the church so we oh, we they, they have truths they yes have truths. they have truths you mentioned mm -hmm. they 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 were around from the very beginning Ooh, docetism they're, they're marxism until we die yeah and they're going to be with the church until the second coming because of the tendency of reassert overly asserting our role in trying to understand and, and proclaim the truth let me just give an example of one parallel in the contemporary world, we are seeing resurrected the same heresy that existed in the ancient church with Manichaeism and dualism. At the heart of Christian faith is the belief in the bodily resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified body. And there were many people in the ancient church who wanted to take the human being and separate body and soul and say, we're really about the spirit, but the body is, is evil, the body is what makes you sin, the body is something you gotta get rid of, it's, just, it's not worth it. But from the beginning, Christian revelation was that our resurrection, our glorification is body and soul. Now, you see that the same in the 21st century. So if you ask the average person of the 21st century what a human being is, they would not say body and soul. The average person would say it's a center of consciousness, a center of, of, of spiritual energy that can think and make choice and love in a body. So the body's kind of like the canister, but the body's not really me. Christian Revelation says, uh, yeah, it is you and me. Yeah, it is. For all eternity. And Frank Caggiano is not Frank Caggiano without his body. Right. Good, bad, and the ugly about it. Right. So those heresies are half-truths. And when we have time to go through the fathers, we will see them all alive and well in the contemporary church. 
Arianism, Monophysitism, Nestorianism, Asidocitism, Manichaeism, Dualism, you could go down the list. Yeah. Gnosticism. They're, like just, they're yeah. just not called by that, but they still exist. Yeah. Right. I can't... Mm -hmm. uh, my conversations with people who I love and respect who don't... Um, who don't, who haven't been given the grace of understanding the truth. It's mm -hmm. relativism that is just a killer. I mean, and I can't mm -hmm. get around it because no matter what I say, their answer is, well, that's just what you think. <laughs> well, because the starting point is fundamentally different. We can have an entire show on this question because once I get going, <laughs> but relativism in the modern world is all about I, I becoming the center of truth, morals, and what I define to be good. That it is a subjective criteria, not an objective criteria. And when that becomes your starting point, then it is very hard to get beyond this is your opinion, this is my opinion. But there's a fundamental choice there, and the fundamental choice is that there is no grammar to, to existence, that there isn't a structure that binds us all together, there isn't a common humanity that we can objectively understand, that we live in different ways. So that relativism, when brought to its conclusion, is almost absurd. But that's ultimately where we're moving. And you see it in resurrection tribalism that exists in the modern world. Tribalism is a group of people who think alike, speak alike, believe the same things, and want to propagate it to the world. Social media gives you the ability to do that. And so we have tribes that are fighting with each other. We've talked about that. In the church it exists, outside the church it exists. Right. But the tribes eventually also start breaking down until you become a society of one. Yeah. A very lonely place to be. Yeah. We should talk about that one day because they, there's a lot of implications there, but not without hope. Not without hope. Because I think young people and young adults are beginning to recognize that the bill of goods they have been sold, they don't want. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. They don't want. Because they're not the creators of it. They're the ones who have inherited it. They want more. There's great hope. Mm -hmm. Yes. And who would want that bill of goods? <laughs> yeah. Right. Unless on the menu, it's the only thing off being offered. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. That's why we have to get on the menu. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Uh Bishop Frank, let's, uh, let's take one more break and we'll come back uh, for questions. Thank you. A lot of people listen to Catholic Radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic Radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic Radio is so important. Welcome back, everybody. Um, for today's question and answer, your Excellency, I wonder if uh, you'd indulge me for a bit, because every bishop 
across the US and most of the world has taken the important and protective step of closing public masses. It mm -hmm. still seems to me that there's some pockets of anger and misunderstanding among some folks about this. So can you just please mm -hmm. help us think through this sure. again, Your Excellency? Sure, of course. And and I can perfectly understand um, the, the, the tremendous emotion that has been evoked because of this and the anger that some people feel because they desperately miss the Eucharistic Lord and receiving the Eucharistic Lord. And that is a sign and a testament to their great faith. Um, but I'm going to hearken something back to the primitive church. In the earliest church, there was not always possible the celebration of the Eucharist, simply because there weren't the presiders to be able to do it. Right? So while they had an equal love, um, they, for different circumstances, could not have it as often perhaps as they would have wanted. And that, I think, is a a fairly logical surmise to have. In our own case, what makes the sacrifice we are enduring, and it is a big sacrifice, huge sacrifice, what makes it worth enduring is that we are attempting in Christian charity to protect our neighbor. Because it's not so much that a person may say, well, I'm willing to take the risk. I am willing to take the risk. Even if I contract the disease, I want to have the Eucharistic Lord and receive him. That's very noble. But what may be unbeknownst to that person is you are becoming an agent of the contagion. And that someone who may be innocent or someone who may not be ready or someone who unbeknownst to them becomes infected because of your participation that is something I don't think anyone wants to carry on their conscience. Um, it would make no sense to receive the Eucharistic Lord and at the same time infect others, some of whom may die. What do you think the Lord is going to make of that? So in the end, bishops have made these, very, and I'm one of them, has made these very hard choices. We're committed to restart public celebration of Mass as quickly as is possible, as quickly as possible. And I've already begun discussions internally of how we would do that so we can do it as quickly as possible. But nonetheless, even though people are angry, understandably on some level, and upset, they do have to realize this is a self-sacrifice for the love of another. Even though you may never know who that other is by name or even by acquaintance. And that hopefully gives people solace of why this is happening. Does that make sense? Makes makes perfect sense to me. Um, I can understand the frustration from some of those folks, but uh, you got to trust. We have to trust our bishops. You know, you guys have been put in positions of authority for us for a reason. And, um, yeah, but again, going back to what we said before, there is a tinge in all of us that while we want to respect authority, there is a part of us that believes we are the authority <laughs> and that we should be an authority to be able to make these decisions, but we are not in different realms of our lives. Yeah. Um, I must tell you this. Uh, it, it's for those who receive the decisions, there's a burden. 
I want no one ever to forget that there's a, a burden for those who have to make the decisions. Because yes, I will one day stand before God in judgment, and the Lord knows I have enough to answer for in my own personal life. All these decisions I will have to answer for. So if they are the correct ones, please God, they give him honor. And if they're not, then there may be people who are upset, and rightfully so for some level, but I will pay the price and every other bishop. <laughs> so that's I would just quickly out. Please. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, you continue to be in, in my prayers and a lot of people's prayers. I would also um, point listeners to uh, a piece written by Father Thomas White. He's a Dominican in First Things, which I don't think anybody would consider be a wimpy or unfaithful Catholic outlet, mm -hmm. um, where he supports the decision that you and, and other bishops have made. Mm -hmm. So um, we want to continue to hear from all of you. So please send in your questions for Bishop Frank via social media. Or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. And that, Bishop Frank, is another week. Big thanks to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven. Listeners who are listen looking for some quality Catholic content on the web or social media, type KOFC Museum and give it a like or follow. Bishop Frank is on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. Thank you so much, Your Excellency. May I please ask for your blessing? Steve, it's always great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Let us pray. Lord our God, in these uncertain and challenging times, as we celebrate the, the resurrection of your Son, fill our minds and hearts with hope, patience, and perseverance that we may remain faithful to the proclamation that all sickness and death shall find its healing in your Son, Jesus. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Steve, it's great Amen. to be with you. See you next week. Thanks. See you next week. Okay.